Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Rahul Chahan. He is the Group Managing Director for Foresight Digital. They're a digital consultancy focusing on scale-ups and challenger brands. Rahul, welcome. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. It's a, a genuine delight to find somebody who's equally passionate about what's possible, but frustrated with what's wrong. So I'm really curious, first of all, can you give us 60 seconds on your history to position how you got to where you are? Yeah, look, absolutely. I started my career working on client-side marketing. So, uh, you know, a lot of the challenges and a lot of the objectives that, that I faced were specifically from a brand orientation or a brand lens without really the appreciation for what happens behind the scenes when it comes to the media buying, planning, all of those things that when you're at a when you're at a client, you don't really care for, but you, you know, you pay for. I then moved into working at a e-commerce organization. Same thing, client side, but it was in essence a scale-up, a global scale-up. And from there, that's where I think the media bug or the digital media bug bit me. And that's when I first moved to agency land and uh, worked across four, have worked across four of the largest five holding groups. Finally, I uh, had a bit of a pivot and I joined a consultancy, a digital consultancy um, based out of APAC, founded by a woman. We are, you know, 81% female, 13 different cultures. You know, we specifically, unlike most agencies or consultancies where, you know, they're trying to eat each other's lunch, we don't do that. We have a complete niche, which is challenger brands and scale-ups. That is all we focus on. That is all we care about. And so for us, the connective tissue between the two is often how do you spend smarter, not how do you spend more. That for us is, is the real guiding light. And oftentimes we tend to think about life through the lens of how can you become more effective. So it's not more efficient. It's not cheaper but it's about how do you do things in a way that helps you to both build the pathway that you're walking on and then learn how to walk. So tell me this, in terms of this unique characteristics that you come across with startup, uh, sorry, scale-ups and challenger brands, what makes them different in terms of the environment and the pace and you know, the culture? To, what, what makes them different to work in? from both your perspective, but also the employee's perspective compared with what would be um, a more normal business? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that, firstly, the perspectives should be aligned, right? So if we can't see something from the through the lens or through the eyes of our clients, our customers, then we're doing a pretty fucking shit job, So, <laughs> to be frank. So what makes them different is, there's no right and there's no established way. You, you operate at the nexus of uncertainty. And, and I think that's what typically makes a difference. There is no best practice. There's no BAU. You're building the BAU. So oftentimes they don't know what they don't know. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, there is a sense of uncertainty with how founders themselves or organizations, organizations that are scale-ups figure out what is the right thing to do? What are the things that we should focus on most? And unlike established brands, that changes on a day-to-day basis. You know, it changes on a week-to-week basis. So there is no set and forget at all. And it's I think really, that... Sorry, it's, it, it's really interesting. I just want to interject for a second because you, you've touched on something really important. It's the intersection where they're between the chaos and that sort of pioneering innovation um, yeah. that you're describing there. And it's where you get beyond mere competition or reluctant coexistence and even arm's length collaboration. This is where you've got to get down and dirty together and you're co-creating with the customer. Uh, you're co-designing, you're co-developing and you're co-elevating as well. So th- there's that synthesis. Is that what you're describing there? That's literally what I'm describing. I mean, if you think about it, right, like ultimately there's a few things that, uh, you know, a scale-up cares about that a or, or a founder cares about or should care about that is so entrenched in a more mature organisation, right? They're, they're, some of them are like, I 
have developed this great product, but what the fuck do I do next? I don't know. I don't know how I should plan. I don't know how I should hire. I don't know how I should manage. I don't know how I should retain and exit people. You know, some of those things, for example, can unpack into things like if you're planning, how do I even determine what is a team structure? How do I invest in personnel? What is what, how do I create a marketing plan across specific people? If I'm hiring, what does a job description look like? What do I write? How do I even know that the person who's interviewing knows what they're talking about? How do I manage an interview and how do I make an offer? If you think about management, it's, you know, if we're scaling and all of a sudden I have two, three, four capabilities outside of product, then how do I create an interdepartment or intercapability collaboration model? How do I get people to just talk to each other. And even though we're so small, it's not silos. Everyone's not head down and they're not talking to each other. Well, if if only there was that level of vulnerability where they would come to you and say, I don't know. The problem is the other end of the uh, the spectrum because uh, in my experience of working in scale-ups and challenger brands, uh, you have two uh, very common uh, CEO or founder behaviours. One is that they are the VP of everything. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which means that they're doing th- literally 13 full-time jobs and they're overstretched, which means that they do nothing especially well. They may be incredibly talented polymaths, but what they end up doing is more often than not creating the conditions for driving people out. And then it's always someone else's fault yeah. until they have that epiphany when they realize, holy shit, it's me. Uh, but that happens very, very rarely. Because a lot of these people, in my experience, again, are brilliant, but they're low on EQ. Now, the other end of the extreme is the control freaks who trust no one. And so they more fall into the micromanagement end of the spectrum. And, and, and oftentimes, it, 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 you know, it's, not, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? You can have <laughs> both of those types. And that, that's dangerous. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, there are situations, to be honest with you, where we have engaged conversation with conversations with founders at scale-ups where they, you know, you call them Jack because they're Jack of all trades, but as you said, master mm-hmm. of none. And yeah. so the issue there often is when we have these conversations, it's pretty quick where you can start to create a, an expectation or manage an expectation where it's less about divergent thinking and is more about converging on three key things, leadership and ops, acquisition and nurture retention and advocacy, as well as attrition. And, you know, I'll talk about that perhaps a little bit later on, but if we can get founders to think through three specific pillars, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're some of the way there. And leadership's, leadership and ops particularly is about growth marketing, you know, your brand. Your brand is not you, founder. Your brand might be a reflection of you, but your brand is a living, breathing organism that, that, that has osmosis with every person that you bring into the organisation as well as the values that continue to grow. And, you know, you're so right, Marcus. Oftentimes you have this ego, egotist founder that believes that they are everything that their organisation needs when sometimes what they don't realise is they should be one thing that their organisation needs and build around that. That can be problematic at best. Well, again, how often do we see small businesses stay small because the founder keeps them that way? They don't do it intentionally. They love this baby to death, literally. They, they stifle the growth. More often than not, and that, I guess, you know, if you think about if you, if you were to if you were to dig deep into, you know, the success of startups, particularly, um, I think it's one in every 200 startups become scale-ups. So, you know, you're already, you know, you're already, at, you know, on the back foot. And oftentimes, unfortunately, for those listening out there, you can be your own problem. That's fine. That's okay. Just recognize it. And, and you know, what, how do you start to create specific requirements of yourself and, 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 and time box those and, and keep those sacred and, you know, start to collaborate a lot more with others around, particularly around sales and marketing. I think that often becomes the problem. Well, obviously, founders... Uh, often their own worst enemy, and they don't realize it. Again, how if if you are a founder, how can you recognize that you might be creating 
problems that you're unaware of, but your staff are painfully aware of? It's a great question. I mean, of course, EQ is something that we all wish we had. I think founders, as, as we were talking before the recording, over-index in IQ, but typically under-index in EQ. And I think so just a sense of self-awareness is a utopia. But let's say most founders perhaps don't or they're so passionate, they're killing their baby. I think a great way to look at, the great way in life typically to know what you should do is to know what you shouldn't do. And so, you know, so that's the question. So for me, if you're not doing these four things, there's a problem. So the first is, are you on a continuum and a continual basis, strategy and planning? So do you know your business model? Are you shaping messaging? Are you forecasting? Do you understand how to acquire customers and retain them? That's part one. Part two, setting it up. Have you got an operational structure and a process in play, right? If you don't have that and you're not thinking about that, so that's part two, that's a problem, but only that. Number three, are you measuring the right thing? So are you, are you testing something and are you measuring it, right, if you've got your product out in market? Yeah. And number four, finally, are you able, are you creating or are you realising some type of scale? And if you're not, go back to number one. If you're not doing these four things and these four things only, then you know you're fucking up quite frankly and i think that that to me and for our clients they realize that that should be the realm that should be their entire universe everything else it doesn't matter it's not important these four things are the most important things that a founder should be thinking about and quite frankly delegating where they can um so that they you know more likely to not focus on the product and the brand um to me, they're, they're the most important things. Anything outside of that, it's peripheral noise. Don't, don't pay attention to it. Don't worry about it. And what permission do founders need to give to their next level reports so that they then don't become bottlenecks? Well, fail. Like, I think for me, you know, more, more likely than not, as we talked about a moment ago, you're building the table that you're sitting on, but you've never built a table before. Give those who report into you the permission to fail on occasion. Get them to test and learn. Allow them to make mistakes, but have a tolerable limit for mistakes, but allow them to because you learn more when you make a mistake than when you succeed. Oftentimes, when you succeed, it's passive, right? You're like, okay, cool, it happened. You don't really pay attention to it. Yeah, you celebrate it but you never realize anything more. When you fail, you should absolutely unpack. Why did you fail? What happened? Why didn't this work? What was wrong with the product? How did we deliver it, et cetera? And I think oftentimes, particularly in scale-ups, where there is so much uncertainty by the very virtue, by the very nature of being at a scale-up, that you know, people are afraid to fail. They need some type of structure and so that becomes an issue. So if you as a founder give your direct reports or those who collaborate and work with you the permission to fail six times out of 10, realize that that's a learning in and of itself. That's how, you, that's how you grow, right? That's how you learn. I believe that's the case. And oftentimes founders have this mentality. They should all, they should all be like Steve Jobs and whatnot. You know what? For every Steve Jobs, there was a Johnny Ive. And this is a person who failed and failed and failed and failed and failed until they, he created the perfect Apple product. And so for me, I think people try to be more Job's than I, and I think that's a big problem. Have permission, give your staff permission to fail. Agreed. And also, don't punish them for failing, punish them for hiding. No. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. If shit hits the fan, I want to know about it, but I don't mind that shit hits the fan. And one of the things that I've seen work beautifully is capturing those lessons in a failure log um, and each week or each month you go through the failure log and you work out how do we prevent this from happening again yeah I think all organizations irrespective of whether they're scale-up startups challenger brands mature brands should have a retro every month and the retro should be what was you know what was bad what was good and what should we do better and I think that the failure log should be the anchor it should be the heartbeat of that output so i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more 
Yes, it's really right. interesting. What, what I'm starting to see increasingly, and I'm really, really, really excited about this, um, is high-challenge, high-support ecosystems forming. Um, I'm seeing communities of adjacent businesses uh, collectively coming together and thinking about the customer's problems and trying to think as the customer, but through different perspectives, um, asking the same question through a set of different eyes, uh, seeing it through a different lens. So you've got a dozen different organizations looking at the same problems within one customer and collectively coming up with much better solutions. Yeah. Co-marketing, co-selling. I agree. I think that the foundation of that and the and the the thing that makes that really sing is taking a step back and understanding that you need to understand customers as people, not just customers. So when you start to understand customers as people, it opens up. It's like Dorothy, right? Where Dorothy was in Kansas and it was black and white and she went to Oz and fuck me, it was colour. There was so much richness. That's the difference, right? And so what does that mean? So, well, if you're understanding your customer as a person, then it's not just demographic or media consumption, but it's behaviour. How are they attitudinally? What are they, what are they like in the category of which, you know, you have a product? What are they culturally and socially? So, you know, you start by identifying their key attitudes, beliefs, and values. So what are their life motivations? What makes them tick? What are the key influences in their life? Who do they trust? Do they trust you or do they trust a brand like you? And why do they trust that brand or that product? Who are the most important relationships to them and how can you leverage that to, you know, to sell your product in, influence the influencer, so to speak? And how can, how can, that, be, how can that be a segue for your product? And part of that is exactly that, the one-to-one chats, forums, qualitative groups, um, you know, ethnographic research. So, of course, from, you know, if we think about from what I first said to what I last said, there's an increase in cost and time. To me, it always, it always is founded in people, humanise it. And oftentimes we forget, we drink our own Kool-Aid, we refer to the customer as the customer, but we don't understand that the customer is just a person who happens to be in a profession that you're targeting but they don't always thinking through the lens of their profession. Like I'm in marketing. My life isn't through the lens of marketing. I don't interact with people through the lens of marketing. I interact with people through the lens of marketing. Who you are is not what you do. That is a role function. Fuck yeah. Absolutely. Identity identity is who you are. Now, this is a huge challenge. And one of the things I'm most grateful for from my time with the franchise was understanding that difference between identity and role. And I think at at, at a deep level, it's really important for founders to surround people, uh, surround themselves with people who can help them recognise that difference. Absolutely. And when when you can do that, when you can help someone to recognise, you can help the founder to recognise that difference, the founder then moves away from this perception that everyone is in market for my product all the time, so I should sell, sell, sell. And if I'm not, I make, you know, my my staff or, you know, my organisation is making a mistake. No. You know, people go through phases. They're people, right? So they're passive or they're active. You know, when they're passive, you think about as as, as an organisation from a sales and marketing perspective, you know, how are people influenced when they're not in decision-making mode? And then what's the trigger that moves them from passive to active? And how can your product engage with that trigger, leverage that trigger? And then what are the actions and influences when they're in an active phase? And then finally, you know, or or, or second to last, you know, when you think about what drives their decision to purchase or not purchase, which is similar to what we spoke about before. If you're a customer or a, you know, someone who's, you know, engaged with the brand and purchased that brand and you leave, what drove that decision to purchase or engage or leave? So how do you understand that? And then finally, what happens after you, you purchase? So, you know, so from the lens of a person, if you take them through that cycle, it's almost like cradle to grave, right? From yeah. life to death. And I think that's really, really important 
for founders to understand. They don't, they don't often, but my gosh, when they do, you can scale so much faster. What, one of the things that I'm really excited about as well is the pandemic's actually been remarkably good for many things because what it's been is a catalyst for incredible levels of creativity around collaboration. And it's also driven a need to drive closer human connection. What I've seen is a burgeoning of supportive technologies, but most people haven't yet worked out how to apply them. I can see this because of the noise. There are 8,000 MarTech vendors. There are 1,500 sales enablement vendors. That tells me there is a big problem worth billions and billions of billions of dollars that no one has managed to solve. Yeah. And, And the reason is they're looking at the wrong end of the problem. They're trying to solve the downstream symptoms that are deeply embedded. And in order to do that, you have to use enormous amount of brute force, enormous effort and a lot of expense. And not enough people are looking upstream at the origins, the causes, where if you can stop those things from occurring and you're patient, then the flywheel effect has the opposite impact, which is that instead of creating friction and massive inefficiency and ineffectiveness that require you to then spend more money on more shiny technology to try and drive efficiency, focus on the right end of the problem um, by focusing on the causes and look for the confluences where two, three, or four of these causes intersect because if you can tackle it at that moment upstream then downstream first of all the problem never happens and it frees up all of that resource now in the last couple of years a lot of technologies have blossomed that smart salespeople and smart marketers will partner with so you have this human technology alliance in order to drive greater performance from both and Increasingly, I'm seeing that happening. And I'm really curious about how you're working with your uh, clients to help them build that ecosystem, that technology stack, as well as the right culture. It's a great question. So let's take a step back on that and then answer it. So we know that the pandemic created two, two things. One is the cause, one, one, one is the effect. So you had a forced digitization. People were forced to stop movement, engage virtually, and work from home. And, and that, that was the greatest, the greatest, I believe, change in terms of technology adoption, mass technology adoption that's ever occurred. Yep. A whole world of people who were used to reading faces, emotions, in-person and via osmosis sitting in their offices or their homes alone and trying to understand what is that person trying to impart? What am I learning from them? How am I engaging them? Am I even engaging them is what I'm saying salient. That's something that that, that happened. Mm -hmm. And as as an outcome of that, you needed to develop what in many ways is a virtual EQ, right? You have EQ, but how do you, when you are on the other end of Zoom or Teams or whatever you use, Google Meet, whatever. How do you read that other person? How do you collaborate with that other person and ensure that that collaboration is as rich as it was in person? Um, how, How do you do that? And so the way that we work with our clients is it's always a hybrid model. It's got to be tailored. You know, if the culture of your scale up or your challenger brand is one where you are absolutely used to doing things in person and um, and you know and, and engaging in that way. Then often what happens is that you can't have a wholesale change to a work from home environment where you're engaging on Zoom or you're engaging on you know on on technologies and you're building these project management platforms. You're you know you're working on virtual tools like Stack. That's like Slack. And so you're building this technology stack that is purely based on virtual interaction. It won't work. Mm-hmm. It just it won't work. And so the way that we engage with our clients is we firstly say, okay, 
What's the culture of your organisation? Do you have check-ins every morning? Do you uh, require communication to be delivered via Slack, text message, email, verbal, phone call? What is that? And even there, is that the prevailing culture of the organisation or is that your perception of the culture of the organisation as a founder? Because founders want something to be a certain way, but it doesn't always happen, right? So, so, So what is the real? And then what we end up doing is we create a model that's a, that's a hybrid solution based on what we're trying to impact. So what I mean by that is if as a sales and marketing team, your objective during a seasonal peak is to get something out to market in a really fast-paced fashion, then maybe you only need two or three of those and maybe a phone call or a Zoom meet or you know catching up in a workshop will, will, will suffice where you could have, have delivered that entire thing from a digital mechanism because that works for you. But if you're, if you're, for example, undertaking transformation projects, restructuring projects, you are literally pivoting your product into something else because you figured out that people are leaving because that's not working, then perhaps the way that you should engage internally is by setting up one-to-ones in person creating hubs wherever you are so that people who are working from home can connect uh, twice a week or once a week at a, in, in a physical environment and they speak to the challenges and their problems. And so all of this forms this marketing structure that, you know, that can't just be solved with a digital-only solution or, a, or an in-person-only solution. It requires, it requires, you know, a fairly agile approach to the problem. So you reverse engineer what you're trying to achieve or the objective, the problem, and then you come back. That's what we have found typically works for the scale-up organizations. Now, uh, the caveat is most scale-up organizations that we work with are global. And so that's a bit different, different budgets, et cetera. But if you're somebody who's at the precipice of a startup and you know, in, you know, you're sitting there thinking, well shit roll, that that's all great, but that seems like it's too hard basket, a lot of stuff requires money. You know what? Ultimately, I think that it goes back to that key point um, that I mentioned before, which is if you're in an organization and you have limited means to do something, you're in a scale-up, then perhaps the best way for you to approach your team and collaborate is literally by virtue of those four pillars that I mentioned before which, you know, again, going through them. Remind uh, sorry? Remind us what they are. Yes, absolutely. So that is strategy and planning, setup, measure, and scale. I think for us, if you only think about strategy and planning, business model, messaging, acquisition and retention, setup, structure, measure, run a program, test it, Figure out what you need to, what you, what, what, what success is, and finally scale, which is how can you do that same thing more of, you know, to a wider geography, to a wider audience, etc. If you can only think about those four things, and you know, for your staff, the way that you, you know, the way that you collaborate, they're the four things that you hit. I think that that's probably you know a cheaper, easier version than you know something that is. This convoluted hybrid model or whatever. It's, it's wonderfully elegant advice. Uh, very, very good. So I, I have a question because I think my pal, Jerry Lemberg, who claimed to be one of the four original founders of Intel, uh, he claimed okay. uh, Steve Jobs' scoutmaster and first investor in both Microsoft and Oracle. He told uh, great stories. He was shot down twice as a fighter pilot and uh, was almost captured once by the Viet Cong um, and fished <laughs> out of a, a boat. So th- this is a guy who told great stories. But yeah, quite a lot. He used to describe entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. <laughs> now, how do you help a founder find true market fit? And at what point do you have to tell them, actually, you've just created an ugly baby? And no one's going to want it. Well, I think that's a that's a, that's an interesting question. It's a difficult question. Let's unpack that a little bit. At what point do you tell a founder 
that what they've created just isn't working. Okay, well, firstly, if it gets to the point that you have to tell the founder, it's probably too late. <laughs> so, and I think that that's a key thing because what that tells me about the founder is, like, there's no such thing as an overnight success. There's just, there's not. And so, therefore, there's no such thing as something that occurs in an organisation immediately. You can see it coming. And if it, you couldn't see it coming, what it means is you didn't have the right structure set up in the first place. Yeah. So let's unpack that. What that means is you were not measuring the right things. You didn't have an idea of what success looked like. You were measuring everything, not the thing that matters. And if you get to a point where all of a sudden, you know, you spontaneously realize, well, shit, the things that the things that matter, they're not firing or this isn't working, then I think that you might want to have a good look at yourself as a founder and maybe, I don't know, get a job at Burger King. I think what, what ends up happening is that when you when you set up a marketing, a growth marketing strategy, you really need to figure out what are the few things that you can do best with that product, test it with an audience that you believe is the most valuable audience. And we talked about audiences. They're not audiences, they're not customers, they're people, right? Figure out the right person for your product. And if that person isn't engaging, that's cool, pivot. And if that person's not engaging, that's cool too, pivot again. Keep pivoting until you find the right customer, which is where, you know, multivariate testing comes in. You need to continue to test and test and test with your customers or your audiences to find more of the right segments, right? So you're diluting risk. And th this is really, really critical because the single most important factor that determines your prospecting success is the quality of your targeting and your list building. and the most senior person in your organization really needs to be building the list. And what they need to be looking at is they need to take out any form of attachment. When they're putting the list together, they need to also equip you with the tools to be able to do the research. They need to give you the breathing space to be able to go deep and wide and engage within those accounts. Because I think one of the worst strategies that you can have is just you know, throw lots of mud at the wall and hope some sticks. Sales is not a numbers game. There has to be a certain volume there, um, but it is far better that you target really thoroughly and you work out who your customer is. And an apocryphal story, um, one of the companies that I work with helps uh, organizations identify who is likely to be receptive today through their psychographics. And who is not, and to be able to map the path of least resistance. And the first step is identifying who your true ideal customer persona is. One training organization, after about a seven-minute churn of their data, came up with the realization that they, for four years, had been targeting the wrong customer. Within seven weeks, they, uh, sorry, within six weeks, they had a 700% increase in sales. And Absolutely. it overwhelmed the business. You hit the nail on the head. It is the difference between a profile and a persona. I'll give you an example. I used to lead media strategy for BMW uh, in, a, in, a, in another life. And BMW, for example, thought that their, their ideal persona or profile was, let's say, for, a, uh, for an X5, Caucasian gentleman who... Um, you know, is an accountant, lives in inner city suburbs, two kids, et cetera, right? And then, you know, personas, personas are different by geographies. And that's well and good. That might have been who they thought they were targeting. Here's the problem. The people who were buying the vehicles were Asian origin, yeah. Arabic origin, typically did not have a degree, were not in a white-collar role, but in fact were business owners, fruit shops. They were, they were flipping properties. They they were affluent Arabs, you know, they were, you know, Asian origin customers who perhaps had three, you know, Chinese restaurants, etc. The person you think is the right fit because 
it's a it is a subject as you said Marcus a subjective exercise in who you wish was buying your product more <laughs> likely than not isn't the person buying your product and do you know what that's great you, you you should embrace that failure you should know that because I think that what you know brands want to be luxury they want to be premium they want to be this they want to be that I'll tell you what there is more there is more income in a two dollar shop than there is in 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 a brand that wants to be you know haute couture because ultimately what you need to understand is who is the where is latent demand coming from embrace that data understand where you can find more of them who was always pivoted who was always attracted to your product rather than who did you wish were attracted to uh, your product that's uh, the key okay i'll give you another concrete example of this and i i, I want people to take from this that billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar brands are making this mistake all the time. So you can be mm. forgiven for doing it, uh, but don't keep making the same mistake because it's costly. Mm. It will kill your business. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons why one, only one in 200 startups become scale-ups is because most of them die on their ass uh, long yeah. because they never find a customer because they've created a product that no one wants. Or they haven't found a way of making it attractive to people because a lot of challenger brands they sound too good to be true. Um, yep. And you need to be able to build that story with credibility. So you've got, you've got to be able to help them make the intellectual shortcut where the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of change and the pain of inaction is greater than the pain of change. But in order to do that, you still have to take them on a journey. And as founders, you've already gone 12 steps ahead and you need to allow and have the patience for your customers to catch up. Even some of your staff need to have that time to catch up because as a visionary, you might be thinking in such massive terms that people don't have that point of reference. Have you yeah. come across this? Because I come across this a lot. Absolutely. I, I think, I think oh, let, let, even, even on that point, there are literal industries built on the, you know, the pain of inaction. Um, you know, switches and movers, electricity, right? Utilities, energy companies. You know, your bill was X, you get price shock. If you don't move, it's going to cost you Y. So what do you do? You switch. That's a more mature category. But certainly I think one of the things that we have seen time and time and time again is a situation where you don't know how to package your product. And that 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 they're, they're, you know it's like an Olympic race, right? You you win in the micro moments, right? You win in the milliseconds, and oftentimes it's how you package, how you communicate that which you have to offer. That's the difference. Now, what does that mean? Typically, it's a, you know it's the value exchange. It's you need to understand that exchange. Do you as a so it may be on price. Now, if it's on price. That's a big problem because you're going to commoditize your product. It's a race to the bottom. So what else is there? Well, let's see. There is, are you, is the value exchange social currency by virtue of purchasing your product or being associated with your product? Are they elevated amongst their peer set? Okay, that could be one. Another one, is it education? By virtue of engaging with your product, they are smarter for having done so. And is that something that you are, that you are leveraging? That could be one too. Number three, is it speed? Is their core problem understanding that time is something that they, they, they have none of? And so you facilitate the pain of inaction versus action, right? If they don't act now, then more likely than not, it's going to take them a longer time to solve the thing that your product offers. So is it time that you're giving back? Is that your value exchange? You know, number four, is it is it the fact that your product is part of a suite, a stack of products that will help to create a better outcome for them. So it might be a B2B solution. And so therefore it fits in easy into an ecosystem. I'm not talking about open source, but it might be something that it's easily, it's easily adaptable. It's, the, it's, it's this old adage, right? And it works, it's double-edged sword. And so, for example, if you have an Apple phone, you very rarely leave Apple because it's connected to an ecosystem that you need 
Um, and, you know, oftentimes you get, you know, it's quite hard to switch and move. And I think it's the same type of methodology that founders should think. It's like, do I make it easy for me to connect or my customer, my person to connect my product with something else? And it might not be an actual connection, but it might be complement. It might be, it might be supercharged, whatever. So there's another value exchange. And I believe, we believe at Foresight that that's how scale-ups or startups become scale-ups. You know, that one in 200, it's, you're thinking about that, which is greater than your product. The value exchange, I think is incredibly important. That's what we believe. That's really very interesting and fantastic advice. If you're trying to find your fit in the market, then, you know, go through that checklist and identify where you fit. Because if you don't fit within one of those four areas, then chances are you're probably aiming at the wrong target. Yeah. Let's build on finding that market fit. Let's assume you found your points of value exchange. So it may be the social currency. It may be your fit within an ecosystem. It may be that you give them time back. Then what next in terms of developing that fit? That's a great point. So firstly, what next in terms of developing that fit? Well, have you iterated your product to be able to fit into that which you've discovered? Number one. Number two, is it future-proof? So I think that's really important. I think that a lot of scale-ups do a set-and-forget mentality. I'll create something. It's great. It's useful. But you're not thinking um, from the lens of 70, 20, 10. And I think that that a lot of founders might need to start thinking about their product in this way. So, so, so what is 70, 20, 10? Effectively, 70-20-10 is a methodology that, that Coca-Cola actually invented back in the day, and it's a, it's a bit of a guide. So what that means is it's now, new, next. Really, really important. Now, new, next. So from a product perspective, is your product fit for the now? Okay, great. So assume that that's 70% of your focus. It's fit for the now. Wonderful. The 20% is new. Is your product able to innovate with purpose? That's really important. And then there's the 10. Are you, as an organization, testing entirely new products um, from a a sales perspective or a development perspective? Because what will end up happening is if you don't approach things this way, the market will catch up to you. And so what was now will become old. What was next will become now. And what is new, which is completely, you know, greenfield, will become next. And so what ends up happening is over time you become irrelevant. And I think that's really, really important. Founders create a product for the now. They really think about how it's obsolescence, the future proof of that. And you know what? Do you want an example? Blackberry. Do you want another example? Tumblr. Do you want another example? MySpace. Do you want another example? Do you know what? I also think Snapchat. Why? Well, Facebook, you know, had Instagram stories and effectively more people now engage with with Instagram than than they they ever did with Snapchat. And Snapchat had this microsecond, you know, exchange and now Facebook effectively stole it for Instagram and most people are on that because Snapchat weren't thinking, well, what happens if someone steals my now or my next and it becomes the now? So I think it's really important to think about that. So again, I'll repeat it. The things you already do, do it better. Innovate, that's the 70. The 20, innovate with purpose with your existing product. And the 10 is test an entirely new and unproven product because it will become more commonplace the quicker than you think it will. Okay, that's really, really interesting. Okay, so it strikes me that With those examples of organizations that you cited like BlackBerry and Tumblr and so on, it's more important to establish yourself as first to mind than first to market. And if you are first to market, you have to consolidate your position and really build on that so that you remain first to mind because it's easy to be overtaken. And first to market are often overtaken because they get complacent. Is that what I'm hearing? That is literally the the synthesis of what I said but you said it better mate excellent okay I should do this for a living (laughs) Um, so um okay 
so you, you've now found your market fit. The next stage is obviously, well, I'm not going to say what's obvious uh, because I'll probably uh, fuck it up. So I, I'm going to leave that to you. So you, fa- you found your position in the market, your place. What do you do next? Your key issue is effectively product market fit. So you're defining your core value proposition. You found your addressable market and your growth. What ends up happening then is, you know, as a scaler, so the journey for that particular thing is, okay, so you found your product market fit and growing. You got your strategy plan, set up pilot measure scale. We spoke about that. The next part of it is where you then say, all right, cool. So I am now in a position where things are working. They're working well. I kind of understand my CVP. Great. I have a bit of an addressable market. Yep. Now, as a founder, what you need to focus on is scale. So how do you turn the funds into actionable growth? How do you structure your marketing and sales people roles for growth? How are you starting to hire so that as your sales start to scale, you have a team that can support that scale? Because the other thing that you always need to think about is your customers will expect something or your people will expect something at speed, quickly implemented, and then repeat. I'll give you a quick tangential example of that. When Uber comes into a market that hadn't had, that didn't have Uber, people were catching cabs and they expected a cab wait time to be anywhere up to 20 minutes. Uber comes into the market, all of a sudden wait times were down. So generally, people just expected wait times for any transportation to be eight minutes. Then as that, that organization, that's Uber, develops in that market, it was down to three minutes. So what ends up happening is now... Uber's in your market, you would believe that, you know what, I'm not going to wait any longer than three minutes. So that's the same with your customers. When you start developing some scale, some traction, they expect things to happen at speed. And if you don't have the teams ready or you don't have your people trained to start to deliver that at the pace that they want it, that becomes a problem. So that's the third thing. Fourth thing. As you start to scale, as you've after you've got your product market fit, etc. Well, what are you measuring? What are your targets? Develop, establish those targets. Really, really important. And then, as as we spoke about before, pressure test them. Are those targets still relevant? Is that is what we were looking? Are the goalposts still the same, or have they moved? Do we need to widen them? For example, then after you start doing that, you're thinking about and this is in that sort of final bit, how do you move into, and we spoke about this before, other geographies, other markets, other segments, other personas. And if you can't move into other personas, you'll need to identify what is your total addressable market because personas don't grow as fast as you think they do. People are typically the same. There's only so much of so many people and they grow at a slow rate. So the trick is how can you widen that? How can you be important or relevant to more than one segment or more than one customer segment? And by that's how you scale because you're not a solution for one, you're a solution for some. And I think that that to me is how all successful scale-ups, and if you think back from, you know, particularly over the last 10 years of successful scale-ups, um, that that typically is what they had in common. They were able to diversify their product. So within that first zero to 10 years or zero to five years, they were able to create a proposition for more than one persona. And, I, and I'm talking about, you know, organizations that, that, that most people can easily understand. So what I mean, by, or, 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 or not understand rather, but uh, are aware of. So, you know, in this case, we're talking about your Slacks, your Square, your Dropbox, your Elastics, your Pivotals, your Twilios, your Zooms, you know, your Atlassians, your MuleSofts, you know, your Shopify's. It's not for one target audience. It's not one-to-one, it's one-to-some. And I think that's what a successful scaler needs to think about as it scales. 
It is more places, more people. Then finally, as a founder, really important, remove the shit, remove the fat, remove complexity, make it easier for your staff to win. Remember, you've got to give them permission to fail, cool, and tell you when they're going to fail, but remove complexity. Our category is probably, I think we're, 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 we're terrible at this, but there's so much marketing bullshit, marketing jargon that people speak. We try to make it complex. It's not complex. It's really easy. Find the right person, sell them the right thing, repeat. Simple. Same thing in your organization. Remove the complexity, automate where you can, and ensure that by virtue of doing so, your people continue to believe and continue to buy into the future. Now, new, next. They continue to buy into the next. And I think if you can do that, then you are well ahead of 90% of the scale-ups that we initially engage with before you know, we engage with them and, and grow with them. You're well ahead. So that would be my advice, Marcus. There, there are a couple of things I want to unpack from that because um, I, I just want to be clear. When you say that an organization that wants to scale needs to be ready to pivot into other markets, I absolutely accept that. But what would you warn people in the early stages about spreading themselves wide? Well, once you define the key customer, the key persona that works, understand everything about it and then figure out where are they more of them. And typically there are more of them in other geographies. So firstly, unpack as much as you can, take it right to the end, A to Z, find out, find more of the people who engage with you. So that's what I mean by that scale. So scale within a vertical, right? Scale within that segment. Once you've done that, and that will take quite a bit of time, But once you've done that, then think who else could appreciate, engage with, have a value exchange with, be educated by, be entertained by, have their life hastened, whatever it might be, with a product like my product, a pivot, and start thinking about how you develop something that's complementary. Then you move out of the persona that you have now scaled across geographies into another persona, and then you start again. That's what I mean. Excellent. Okay. And then how do you ensure that the measurements that you are focusing on are leading indicators that allow you to adjust your behavior and are useful rather than just simply tracking for the purposes of audit? That's a really, really interesting point. I think when it comes to particularly performance marketing or or just analytics, I think that Creating a measurement plan is, it's effectively a, it's about a three, three point exercise, right? So what are your goals? What are your metrics? And what are your key performance indicators? So I think part of that is, is really understanding three things. The, the, the first is, and, you know, I am going to get a little marketing S, so I apologize in advance to the listeners out there, top, middle, and bottom. So part of that is, Firstly, overarching thing, only measure what you need to measure and what matters. Don't measure everything. You can't measure everything, so don't worry about it. Measure the things that matter. And that's so different to, you know, depending on category. But typically, we believe that the things that are really important considerations are four things. Number one, lead scoring, right? Not all leads are created equal. You know, what you need to do is develop a framework um, and this is a shameless plug, but I will do it. Feel free to go to foresightdigital.com.au. We have a Foresight Marketing Academy workshop. It'll help you do it. It's a really cheap, easy way to uh, engage with how to learn these things. It's just modules that we provide. Anyway, back to programming. So lead scoring. So not all leads are created equally. So how do you create a framework that customizes a score based on your most important objectives? Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, attribution. So it is absolutely critical that attribution can occur across the customer journey, the person journey, the persona journey, from click to registration or to sale and to repurchase or to attrition. Really important. Somebody stays, somebody goes, 
make sure you understand how to attribute. Number three is important. It's increasingly important in a world where people would much rather opt out than opt in. And it's this is this is not tangential. It's incredibly important now for the founders out there. Respect people. Respect your customers' privacy. There's nothing worse than a customer trashing you or a person trashing you online because you engage with them without permission. So respect their privacy. Really important. Particularly for those who are in, in, in Europe, the GDPR policy, you can Google it. It's fairly self-explanatory, but respect your customers' privacy. And if, if anyone wants a cheat sheet to make sure you are fully GDPR compliant, email me, marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. My pal Fraser Hay built an entire audit process and I can send you the details. Love it. Yeah, perfect. Email, email Marcus. And, and I think that's incredibly important because... There is nothing worse than a pissed off customer because they won't, you know, they may not advocate for you ever, but my gosh, they will detract. And that's really important. I think, and I don't know the exact statistic, but I I think it's 80 plus percent of people when they read a negative review, irrespective of the quantity of positive reviews, disengage with that particular brand or product. So really important. And then finally, the fourth thing, and that's about a pipeline. So everything that you measure that's relevant, capture it and somehow create visibility. It could be as simple as just putting it into an Excel or a Google Sheet and monitoring what changes are. It could be as simple as that, or it could be as complex as creating a visualization through Google Data Studio, for example, so that you can continually refer to on a daily or weekly basis the changes in the data that you're capturing, the things that you're measuring, because it's the change that creates the insight that creates the action. So that would be um, our, our perspective on key considerations. So if I can summarize our conversation, I think the first thing is ensure that you think as the customer, you humanize your marketing, yep. you make sure that you are timely, relevant, and consistently providing value to your customer. Make yep. sure that you are eliminating friction, you're innovating, you're co-creating, you're working with your customers, especially those who are upset and angry and frustrated and have left you to learn how to improve. You embrace failure. You encourage people to fail and take risks, but to capture those lessons, never to hide them. Uh, And don't punish them for it. And don't punish them for it. And also live by that. Don't say that you're not going to punish them because the moment you go against what you've said, you're going to see your people run for the hills. Um, Oh, it's a domino effect. Uh, We've seen it. uh, Absolutely. Strategy, planning, measurement, and being able to repeat what you do successfully is key. Focus on the value exchange. Get away from price. Focus on the value exchange of education, social currency, speed, how you help complement what they already have to drive more, uh, make it stickier, easier to connect. Then iterate. Make sure you're testing. Fail often. Learn. Capture those lessons. And then consistently make sure that you're relevant today, that you're going to have your future proofing, and that you're cannibalizing your own market by being ready uh, to opt out when you realize that the competition's come in and that market's dead, you need to continue. So if you don't have that, you don't have the ability to grow and scale. And you also need to ensure that you've got um, a plan uh, that is built ahead of your scaling so that you don't end up falling apart as you grow. Is that a pretty fair summary? Perfectly captured, Marcus. You really should do this for a living. Not bad (laughs) Excellent. Rahul, this has been incredibly insightful, and I would love to have you back. Unfortunately, we've come to time. So how can people get hold of you? You can get hold of me on LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, just you know, search for Rahul Chohan, Foresight Digital. You can navigate to foresightdigital.com.au, get in touch with us there. But even if, you, if, even if you're shy and you don't want to get in touch, that's fine. There's so much information on our website for you to learn, feel free to just read, download, absorb. Or alternatively, if you like, you can reach me on email. Um, I answer every single email. 
rahul.chohan, so R-A-H-U-L dot C-H-A-U-H-A-N at Foresight Digital, F-O-R-E-S-I-G-H-T-D-I-G-I-T-A-L dot com dot A-U. And I, yeah, I really look forward to engaging with um, your listeners. Um, if you If you have a question, if you have a problem that you'd like us to solve, we'd be happy to do it. But mostly, you know, I think thank you so much, Marcus, for, for the opportunity to be on this. And, um, yeah, I wish you all the best. Rahul Chahan, thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone. Tag someone in a scale-up. Tag someone in a disruptive business that's or maybe thinking of founding a business and give them access to this so that they can start on the right foot. The advice in here is golden. Take notes and listen again. And in the meantime, if you want to subscribe to the Inquisitor podcast, either at Apple or Podbean or wherever you do it. And if you'd like to be a guest, then please do email me, marcus at laughsliveandlast.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.